to sum up what 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 linear no threshold says is says that any radiation is bad that's what it's saying so there's 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 a additional risk associated with any level of radiation and the reality that i think it's convincingly been shown is that this is not true the rational view is a weekly series hosted by me dr alan scott providing a rational evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, we're going to learn about cancer radiotherapy, the use of radiation to treat cancer. So many people these days are afraid that nuclear radiation causes cancer. And yes, this is possible if you receive a, a sudden megadose of radiation, but it's very difficult to get enough, just enough radiation to increase the risk of cancer while not getting too much dose and then dying immediately from acute radiation sickness. In the real world, radiation is used to kill cancer cells and save lives. To learn more, I'm going to be interviewing one of the world experts in this field of medicine. As always, if you enjoy this content, please hit like on your podcast app and share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you. Dr. Blake Walters received an MSc in medical biophysics at the University of Toronto in 1992. He joined the Ionizing Radiation Standards Group at the National Research Council of Canada in 1994, received a PhD in medical physics from Maastricht University in the Netherlands in 2017. While he was with the NRC, Blake helped to develop new computational techniques to greatly improve the accuracy of cancer radiotherapy. This work helps to spare healthy tissue while maximizing the dose to tumors. This work has been adopted in radiotherapy clinics around the world and has become the gold standard for accurate radiotherapy planning. Currently, he continues his work for the NRC developing and implementing Monte Carlo techniques to meet the increasingly complex demands of current radiotherapy technologies. He's also the in-house physicist specializing in dose calculations for low-energy x-rays for a company that designs and manufactures preclinical and clinical irradiators sold around the world. Dr. Walters, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks, Al. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you coming on and chatting with you. Uh, this is definitely a subject that I have a lot of interest in. Uh, nuclear energy and radiation and cancer and all of that stuff is actually an important social issue right now because of the, the energy transition that's going on and the, the fear that surrounds nuclear energy. Uh, and getting experts in to talk about the risks and the rewards uh, and the uses of radiation, I think, is very important and needs to get out. So... Could you tell me a little bit about your background? Where are you from initially? So uh, I'm, well, I, I was an engineering student at the University of Toronto. That's kind of my uh, undergrad history. And at that point, I was studying uh, aerospace. Aerospace. Uh, engineering. And then you yeah. got into medical biophysics. How did you make, why did you make the transition? Lack of jobs, really. So when I graduated uh, in 1989, uh, the Canadian aerospace industry was pretty much dead unless you were working for spar they had a little bit of going on with the space shuttle and canada arm and so uh, my classmates and i all either transitioned into uh, mbas which i didn't really want to do law school which i really didn't want to do or grad school and so uh, in the sciences and i ended up uh, 
really happening upon medical physics by accident because I worked at the uh, cancer clinic in Toronto. Never even knew it was a field until uh, I had a summer job working with their um, linear accelerators. So linear accelerators at the University of Toronto? No, these are linear accelerators in cancer, in the cancer clinic. Okay, so this is like a particle accelerator in a cancer clinic. These are particle accelerators that are used to treat. I mean, this is the current technology for treating cancer patients with radiation therapy. And so you, you encountered that as a, as a graduate student at U of T? Yeah, well, I, I, I worked as a summer student, then I went into imaging physics as, uh, to, as something to study because I thought radiation was quite brutal. And I didn't think that it had much of a future, um, along with a lot of other people. And uh, then uh, it was my work at the National Research Council after graduate school uh, that really turned my, changed my mind on uh, radiotherapy and where it sits in terms of cancer treatment and, you know, its, it's benefits, its actual indispensability in terms of cancer treatment. Um, I really had my eyes open to that while working uh, in, in techniques to help improve it. <laughs> so yeah, your, your impression that radiation is brutal is, is I think, common and, and shared amongst the general populace. Mm-hmm. And I also yeah. you know, was deathly afraid of radiation just because of the, the, the public narrative that, ner- that radiation is this deadly, toxic thing that kills people and ruins the environment and leaves toxic wastelands. Well, I think we, we all grew up with the, well, we, I, I don't know if you did, but I grew up with the, the uh, you know, the shadow of the nuclear holocaust or the, as a Cold War kid, uh, that was going to be the way, mm-hmm. right? That was going to be how, how it was going to happen, how we were all going to go. And so I think that that's incredible propaganda on a whole generation multiple generations actually so the the field of radiotherapy uh is is you know people who get cancer know all about it but i think people that are not in that loop don't know much about it and you know from from many people's thinking radiation causes cancer Mm -hmm. uh why would you use it to treat cancer isn't doesn't that just make things worse well you could argue that you use it to treat cancer for the same reason that it causes cancer um, radiation relies on our ability to aim it. It, it is a really high energy uh, bullet, essentially. And there's nothing people have talked in the past about the, the magic bullet for cancer treatment, which is uh, sort of the, the, the chemotherapy that will go in and, and target the specific tumor, latch onto the tumor and, and just destroy the tumor cell. Well, with radiotherapy, we actually, it's, it's, it's a bullet definitely, but it's not magic. We have to aim this. And um, so uh, as long as it's aimed in the right place uh, and we know how to do that fairly well, then it will allow us to destroy uh, tumor cells while sparing anything healthy around it. In general, I mean, at the level of radiation we're talking about for treatment, this is something that we want to avoid exposing healthy tissue to. Okay, so you basically have this beam of radiation that you... Uh, aim into a person and try to hit their tumor with while not uh, depositing a lot of dose in the healthy tissue between the gun and the tumor. Yeah, 
And and after the tumor as well, I suppose. Well, and it's further complicated by the fact that depending on the energy of the particles you're using and the type of high energy particles you're using, uh, the peak dose doesn't necessarily occur at the entry point. It can actually, uh, due to interactions as it goes through the tissue, peak dose can be reached somewhere below the surface of the of the of the skin. So it's not linear, effectively. the The dose doesn't uh, peak at the skin and degrade as you go into the body. The the particles themselves will penetrate and deposit their dose somewhere inside the body. Is that correct? Exactly. They set they set other subatomic particles into motion. Those set other ones into into motion. So you have a cascade of events, and uh, the net effect of which, in terms of dose at least, peaks below the skin somewhere. Okay. So you have this factor as well. So maybe tell me a little bit uh, about your your work. Uh, you started radio looking at radiotherapy back in 1994, and you said uh, when you were talking to me earlier that there was a scary and imprecise field when you entered it. What what do you mean? What what was it like back then? Well, it's yeah okay. Well, I <laughs> I don't want to leave the impression that people were getting uh, you know. They were, they were playing fast and loose with, with radiotherapy treatments before then. But um, the, the algorithms that were being used into, say, the, the, the early mid-90s were quite approximate. And they would deal with radiation in a fairly simplistic way that wouldn't account for things like uh, tissue heterogeneity, such as bone or implants, things like this, which all affect the dose. Uh, so they would generally regard tissue or a human being as a water balloon, um, you know, and let's let's see where the, the dose is. And those are the first simplistic uh, treatment algorithms. That, that's the, the, the old adage of the physicist, assume uh, a person is a spherical ball of water. Spherical human, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, we all hope for those in our, in our problem sets and our, uh, you know, the things we have to hand in for class, but the reality is is a lot more complicated. Uh, so I, I can so, see what you're getting at. It is a little scary. It's yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, we're lucky in that the approach has generally been conservative in terms of radiation dose. So I mean, we haven't unless an accident, you know, apart from some early well accidents still do happen, but apart from some early uh, cases, perhaps in most. In most, you know, through the history, radiotherapy really wasn't proposed as a treatment until they were sure that they had, at least for the range of cancers that it was treating, they had something that was going to be beneficial um, along the way. And of but of course, as we as our techniques get better, the the, the the range of cancers and the situation that situations that we can treat become greater and our success rate becomes better too. So, so what, what was the success rate when you entered the field? What, and what, what tools were you using and what was it like? Well, back then, okay, uh, I mean, back then it was still, it was, it was a combination of radiation therapy and chemotherapy. So at that point they were doing sort of, if you imagine uh, a gun, you know, that we're going back to the, the bullet analogy. Mm-hmm. And I hate using militaristic or, or gun imagery, but the gun was just a the barrel. There was a barrel of the gun, right? And you had to, some barrels were narrower, some were wider, depending on what you wanted to treat. Um, now, a lot of the technology is around what's called multi-leaf collimators, where they can actually, while the radiation is happening, they can 
have different leaves that get in the way of the radiation and actually cause, uh, the, the, what they do is they create a radiation field that conforms better to the tumor site. Okay. So they call those, um, so there, there's, there's way more precision in radiation now in radiotherapy. And the other thing too that's come up in the last 10 years, 10 to 15 years is image guided radiotherapy where they actually uh, have real time imaging happening as the treatment is going on so that you know that you are still aimed at the tumor, you're hitting the tumor. I mean, there are lots of issues uh, that can cause a tumor to move such as patient motion, breathing, things like this. So now we have image guided therapy to make sure that we're always hitting the same place from treatment to treatment and during the treatment. Now I need to step back here and, and, and ask some questions. It's not clear to me what's going on here. So we can do MRIs, you can, you can, you can do nuclear magnetic resonance imaging and, and get a 3D model of a tumor inside a body with all of the, the tissues and bones and things in your way. Now, as I'm assuming this is the, the modality that you use to determine where these tumors are. Yeah, it could be a CT image, could be MRI, as you said. Okay. Uh, and in real time, how, are you, how can you monitor this? Do you, is it a similar technology in real time? Yeah, you will. Well, they've got now uh, magnetic resonance image guided therapy. So, I mean, if, of course, it's not you're not seeing the the patient move because magnetic resonance imaging takes some time to to acquire and reconstruct. So I guess real time may not may not be a, an accurate description. But um, yeah, so you uh, but you were able to take an image on board while you're treating. OK, and you can you can see the radiation as well in this like where your radiation beam is? You won't be able to see the radiation. Okay, no. so you're still guessing no. where that is based on the energy of the particles that you're firing in? Well, you, what, you, what you'll have is that you'll have um, sort of stationary points, uh, stereo they call them stereotactic points, where you then, you can look at the image, rel or where the tumor is in the image relative to those stereotactic points and make sure that the tumor is where it should be because your radiation is set up with reference to those as well, your radiation fields. Okay, so you get some sort of external reference that you can line your gun up with, mm -hmm. and that exactly. shows up in the MRI image as well. And for that, you can triangulate mm -hmm. where you think the radiation energy is being deposited. Yeah. So back yeah. in 94, were they using uh, linear accelerators? You, you said that was what you first saw. So what, are they sh what particles are they shooting at people? They're shooting, well, that's, that's another thing that's changed too in recent years, the types of particles they're shooting. So uh, back when I started, they were, they were treating with a lot of uh, gamma rays. So uh, these are some non-charged particles and they were treating with electrons as well. And over the years, the electron treatments have really declined in use. Um, they still use a lot of uh, gamma rays, so photons. These are basically X-rays at very high energies. So they're very penetrating photons of electromagnetic energy that can deposit their energy and kill cells. Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of a, fa a factor of, uh, well, I guess almost a fa thousand. So a hundred to a thousand greater than, say, an imaging X-ray would be an X-ray that's used to in a CT imager or to look at your hand. And the mechanism by which this uh, kills cancer cells, uh, how, how does that work? What, what, does, what do the gamma rays do that kill the cells? Well, they, they interact. So, uh, and this is where nuclear physics comes into it, or high energy physics. They interact with uh, 
with the atoms in your body and they start uh, specifically they interact with the electrons with charged particles in your body and uh, as soon as you set charged particles into motion uh, inside the body you do get effects you you start to um, you start to have some effect on the tissue as the as the charged particle passes through it those charged particles then interact again and may set other gamma rays into motion and so you get this what I talk about is a cascade of effects um, and there's there's a sort of well-known interactions that happen in the body uh, well doc you know well studied that happen in any material material there's nothing particularly special about the body from the from the gamma rays point of view um, but once you get these electrons these charged particles going into motion that's where really the exciting well exciting stuff happens both potentially dangerous and uh, potentially beneficial because that's that's really what the dose comes from are these charged particles okay so you're depositing energy into the atoms of a cell mm -hmm. and is it just basically cooking the cell uh that's one way i mean temperature will go up but really what we're looking at uh at least the, the sort of model for cell damage is uh dna breaks they call them dna double strand breaks uh, where if you can have uh, an ionized particle either through creation of uh, so what happens with ionized particles is they alter the structure of water in their neighborhood so they can turn water into reactive species uh, that can then damage dna or the particles themselves can I guess those there are two there are, there are more than there's more than one mechanism for DNA being damaged. Right, right. But the idea is that the model is that once uh, we have the DNA sufficiently damaged, the cell won't recover. And if it's a tumor cell, that's good. That's what we want. Um, if it's a healthy cell, maybe not so good. And that's why it's important that we aim these things as accurately as possible. I see. And so you said it was. There was a lot of gamma rays. Gamma rays are still going on. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how effective were these treatments back then? Did, did they have a, a reasonable success rate, or was it a black art that hardly ever worked? No, no, it was not. I mean, by when I, you know, when I started on the scene, definitely not a black art. I mean, they were able to, by then even, I think uh, Hodgkin's disease was almost 100, you know, or high percent cure, uh, cure rate. I don't know about 100, but a very high, high percentage cure rate through radiation therapy alone. And as, as, now, as it is now, it's also um, used in conjunction with chemotherapy. So you'll rarely find one type of therapy used on its own. Usually, you know, there, there will be um, a course of chemotherapy that's used maybe to shrink back the tumor or radiotherapy to shrink back back the tumor one or the other followed by radiotherapy um, I don't know in terms of uh, because I'm not really a clinical guy I'm not sure how they actually intersperse those but usually they're used in conjunction with each other I see yeah that makes sense yeah so it it had some reasonable rate of success depending on the cancer then sure yeah I mean this is true of all cancer treatments so, so, I mean, people are, are very worried about radiation causing cancer. Yes. Is there, uh, what's the risk of, of getting a new cancer from getting radiation therapy? Huh, well, I mean, it's, at some point, I, I think that 
in most cases, someone undergoing radiotherapy, the, the, the sort of the statistics of concern are really uh, the, the destruction of the existing cancer. Um, and so anything due to background or some radiation in an unwanted area, you know, higher than normal dose, those, those would be completely, those statistics would be completely wiped out. I mean, this is something that I've never seen measured, you know, additional cancer due to, um, due to cancer treatment. Now they do look at additional cancers due to imaging, so X-ray and, and CT imaging. They've attempted to look at this, um, or background radiation, or accidents. I mean, this is we get into sort of, sort of the, the the other area of radiation uh, and and interactions with people, which is the radiation safety area. Mm-hmm. Um, and and those two, I mean, they're related, but really they operate at different ends of the dose spectrum. So with with cancer treatment, we're, we're looking at very high doses, sort of, you know, uh, well, t- tens of gray, and a gray is just a, a, an amount of energy, de- a measure of the amount of energy deposited in, in cells. So that we're talking tens of tens of gray, centigrade to, to, to gray, whereas uh, in radiation exposure, we're really talking in the, in the milligray uh, region. And that gets, so we're at a low, the low end, and then the, you, you, it really is that then we can start talking about sort of the risk, uh, because these are people who may not be getting radiation for treatment. And so, you know, the disease is, a disease may not be a concern. It's more about maybe getting, having a, a disease due to the radiation at this low end. Um, so it's, it's, I would say then back to the original question, I'd say the statistics of, of that low end stuff are really not applicable when you're talking about cancer treatment. They're, I mean, this is something where the, the, what, we're, what we're concerned with is getting the cancer um, and minimizing what we give to the healthy tissue. Follow up on healthy tissue, I, I'm not aware of too many follow uh, too many studies on that. Mm-hmm. But I think um, what they look at for cancer is really five-year survival rates. Um, these are very; these are sort of the that's a significant milestone to be a, survi- a five-year survival rate, and that accounts for um, that accounts for the treatment, chemotherapy, radiotherapy. Doesn't really think about uh, anything that you may have got in excess of that. Okay. I- I want to go back and, and revisit the, the sort of um, medical risks of, of low-dose radiation. But you, you said uh, something like 10 grays is, is deposited in a, in a treatment on the order of, you know, tens of grays. Yeah. Now, a gray is like a sievert, right? Yeah. So a sievert is what we, what we convert a gray into to talk about uh, exposure and safety. And it's the only... Um, it, it is the same unit. It's the same thing. It's modified. It can be multiplied by modifying factors such as the, what kind of radiation the person is receiving, mm-hmm. or um, there's another factor as well, and I can't remember what it is. So there's a quality factor, which is the kind of radiation, and then there's another. Uh, there could be an organ at risk factor. So what organs are receiving the radiation? So there may be some modifying factors, but in general, they're the same thing. Okay, but. So 10 grays, 10 sieverts, that's huge. That's well, that, that's basically a fatal dose if it's a whole body dose, right? 
Yes, yes. If we're talking, yes, if we're talking exposure and safety, ten sievers is a disaster. But you yeah. you routinely put that under into a into a person to kill their cancer. Yes, you need to put it, and but you need to know where it's going, and that that's why you, you need, need to, know to where focus it's going. it exactly. Yeah, yeah. So maybe tell me a little bit about how you do that. How do you focus that radiation so that it hits the spot that you want it to go? What if, what is what does your work involved? So, well, I mentioned the, the use of these sort of uh, increasing accuracy uh, fields. So we send it into this little area and we can now have that area more conforming to the tumor than, than we were in the past through these collimators I was talking about. So before you treat a person, I'll back up a bit, maybe go through kind of uh, uh, from, from at least my perspective, the cancer treatment process, which is uh, you know, the person to simplify it, the person uh, gets an image, the uh, radi the radi the radiologist looks at the image and says, yes, we have something here. Uh, there's there's a you know, they they note the tumor uh, radiation oncologist. They, they determine the type of tumor location. Uh, they will determine the dose that's required. And then we need to once we have all of that, we still need to know how what we need to do with this big linear accelerator to give the patient that dose so what energy do we need to use what sequence of collimations do we need to to use to give the patient the dose to the tumor and not to the to anything surrounding it to any healthy tissue mm -hmm. um, and i mentioned these very simplistic ways of calculating radiation dose uh, well things have gotten a lot more accurate, even in the calculation of dose. And that's kind of where I came into the field. We use a, the, the, the sort of the gold standard technique uh, is now based on what's called Monte Carlo, uh, which sounds like uh, gambling. And in fact, it is a prob probabilistic technique um, that's intended to gamble less with people's safety uh, and, and uh, health. And what we do is, is, is it allows a simulation of every single, I mentioned all these interactions that are going on inside the body. It allows a simulation of every single interaction that's going on inside the body from a given uh, linear accelerator setup um, so that you can predict the dose that's going to be, that the patient will receive. And this includes all bone surrounding the tumor, any obstructions, uh, implants, anything like this. So, we're, it, it, and it's the only way there, because radiation is a statistic, radiation dose is a statistical process. It changes over time, right? Um, the more, the longer we, we, we bombard the patient with a, with a beam, the dose is going to change. The dose will evolve. And the only way we can simulate this is with Monte Carlo. Why, why does um, it change? Why does the dose change with time? Well, because you're, you've got more and more interactions, right? More and more is happening. It's a stochastic uh, process. It's, and so the, I guess the simplest way to explain it is the longer you're shooting radiation into the person, the greater the dose will be. Yes. Right? Um, and that, not just, that doesn't just include the tumor, that also includes the surrounding tissue. And, be, and because these uh, interactions are probabilistic events, the longer you shoot the radiation into the, into the person, the greater the probability that some event will occur, you know, 
somewhere distant in the tissue, uh, somewhere far away from the tumor. So it's I'm just basically what I'm saying is that we have a, a, a thing. It's, it's not a pill that will give you a one-time dose. This is a this is a thing that we need that that as long as we aim it into the tumor, we're we're giving the tumor the dose, but it's it's over time, right? So this is happening over. There is a time component to this, mm -hmm. and and the only way to simulate accurately this plus interactions in all of the uh, all of the the entire environment of the tumor really is with is with this technique called Monte Carlo. Okay, so you simulate the body and the radiation interactions. Yeah. So Monte exactly. Carlo is when you you basically just use a computer to f to fire. Uh, projectile radiation projectiles into a simulated body and find out where they end up and, and add a little bit of randomize, randomization uh, to the uh, trajectories to kind of fill up your beam. Well, and the, the randomization actually applies too to the uh, interactions. So at any given point, there's a probability that this interaction will occur. Or, uh, you know, I, I don't know, well, you, you're probably familiar with Compton uh, interactions. If you're from astrophysics, mm -hmm. you've got a photoelectric effect. So any of these, these, these are all interactions that occur and they have a given probability at any point and at any energy. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's a hugely complex uh, physical system that's being simulated. Yeah, it, it basically brings in the quantum mechanics of physics into it because in physics, you no no trajectory of a microscopic particle is deterministic. It's always random based on probabilities, and so the best way to simulate it is with a probabilistic simulation, exactly. uh, and that gives you fills out basically all of the possibilities until you get a, a good representation of the actual dose. So that that right. that makes a lot of sense. So you've developed the software to to do this modeling for bodies, taking the data from an MRI and then setting up the parameters on your radiation source. So, so your linear accelerators are, are, are accelerating gamma rays then or electrons mainly? Well, they're accelerating the electron. The electron hits a target and then you produce the gamma rays. Then those are the things that go into the body and then you're directing those, right? From my experience as, as a space physicist, you know, we're dealing with radiation in space hitting electronics, so it's, it's quite a, uh, an analogous uh, scenario. We're, we're developing shielding for electronics uh, to keep them from, from basically getting fried from the radiation in space. You're, you're trying to fry the uh, tumor inside a body. It's, it's kind of similar. So from, from my experience, electrons are not easy to corral once they've been fired. They kind of bounce around and they can yeah. penetrate quite a bit and they yeah. don't really deposit all their energy in one place. They kind of spread it out a little bit. Um, now, I, I know that, um, for example, protons are very deterministic. They're a lot heavier, they go in mm -hmm. uh, and then they stop in a very short space when they run out of energy at the end right. and deposit all their yeah. energy there. Lot and I know uh, I I've gone actually to the uh, the Triumph facility at University of uh, Victoria, and used their 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 proton accelerator for testing electronics in the past, and there's a chair there in their electronics radiation testing lab that they uh, use for medical uh, treatments of eye tumors, and they'll actually get the person to sit in front of this beam in this chair and line them up with this 100 meter long gun <laughs> and have they uh 
they've calmed the, is, is the patient uh, given a sedative? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I can imagine. It's, yeah. I mean, even even a even a linear even a, me, a linear accelerator in a clinic is is it's an imposing machine. Even an imager. I mean, if you've ever been inside a a magnetic resonance scanner, scanner or a CT imager, these are not necessarily comfortable places to be. Indeed, indeed. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 difficult. I think as the as a patient to sort of have confidence that a you're not going to you know something bad won't happen or or b when you're sitting there and don't feel anything that anything's happening at all mm. is, is it done yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> how about the other eye <laughs> but, but, but my, my point with the protons is that they, they're much more precise yes right uh, and obviously it takes a lot more um, overhead to, to make a proton accelerator than it does an electron accelerator because of the, the power and the energy, right? I assume that's probably why it's not used much. Well, actually, I was going to, this gets back to my, what I was saying about uh, how radio, or radiotherapy has evolved. Uh, there are a lot of proton machines now. Well, there's oh, okay. a lot of money being put into proton therapy at this point. Um, so in most a lot of clinics of the bigger clinics in the developed world anyway will usually have a proton machine or are in the process of spending money millions of dollars on a proton machine um, and for the reason that you said i mean it's it's seen as a highly desirable radi radiation quality where you have uh, these heavy particles they stop deposit a lot of radiation um, on the spot uh, so there's a potential for great accuracy um, it's interesting to me that they've kind of gone ahead with proton therapy um, and, and it's being used now. Uh, and I don't know if there's been a lot of, there haven't been a lot of Monte Carlo simulations of proton therapy. They're working on that now. I, I think it's undeniably effective, but I'm not, I don't think it's been as studied. It definitely hasn't been as studied as electrons and photons. Mm, it's definitely not as common. So, yeah, it, and it, it won't be as, it's not as common, it's expensive, but it is definitely increasing in use. Well, it seems like a, a very good modality, as you say. So that's cool. So where do you see the field of radiotherapy going? Obviously, proton is one direction. Where is, where is your work going? I mean, the object of radiotherapy, I think, was always to eliminate radiotherapy. Um, but that's not I don't think that will ever happen. I think it's 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 going to more and more accurate, more and more precise delivery. Um, it's always going to be, I think, a partner with chemotherapy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. other modalities. Um, so I mean, the, ex, the so in terms of the developments, we I talked about protons, there's heavy ions as well. That's another uh, Carbon ion therapy is another one that's under development now. Okay. Um, so they're looking at different types of beams then. Uh, increasing accuracy with collimation, mm -hmm. I talked about. Um, and also, I think there's going to be a lot more, uh, there, there, there's going to be an increase in low energy X-ray therapy. So just using kind of X-ray energies to treat lesions on the skin pediatric treatments uh, where you have uh, you know bone that's soft or uh, lesion or tumors that are not uh, far on far below the, the surface um, 
So we're going to see more of that. I mean, whenever you're talking about radiation, we get back into the safety issue, right? So the public perception. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just for it. it I mean, putting, putting in a linear accelerator is expensive. Proton therapy is expensive. You need to build bunkers for these units. Um, there's, a, there's a financial uh, burden um, for anyone wanting to do radiotherapy at a, a you know at a, on a large scale, and uh, certainly uh, like developing countries are facing this with cancer treatment, and so they're looking for cheaper options, and that's where we come back to something like lower energy X-rays, or we go back to old-fashioned uh, root, uh, modalities like cobalt, which is still not is still around in some places. So radiotherapy, I guess I would say it's not really going anywhere. I think it's going to always be kind of hand in hand uh, with chemotherapy um, and other, well, there's now um, immunotherapy. It's always going to be going hand in hand with these Mm -hmm. other techniques. What about, um, I've heard of um, delivering radionuclides internally to the body. So actually taking isotopes and ingesting them with uh, some sort of a delivery uh, tagging that would have them bond to a tumor. Is this a, do you know anything about that? Is that a new technology? I've heard little bits about it, but I haven't. Not, I mean, not not little bit. I mean, that's sort of nuclear medicine. Um, And they've used that to treat uh, bone cancer uh, or actually for imaging as well. Right. It, it, it's, I guess it's something that will always, the, the idea of having a, a targeted radiation therapy like that, like, you know, microscopically targeted will always be attractive. I don't know how much work is happening in that right now. Um, I know there's, a, there's another technique called brachytherapy. I don't know if you've heard of that, which is no. still an external, it's, it's an external therapy, but you actually now insert uh, what you do is you, in, it sounds painful, but you insert tubes that will go near, uh, you know, near the tumor into the patient, and then you shoot little radioactive pellets into the ends of the tubes and therefore deliver uh, radiation just in the region of the tumor. Okay, I, I thought um, you said Reiki, and I thought that was when you wave your brachy. hands over someone. Yeah, oh, Reiki, yes, you did well. <laughs> you know, that apparently helps too. <laughs> Possibly at the same time. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Wow, that that does sound interesting. Yeah. One thing I wanted to touch on in this interview, and I don't know if if you're an expert on this or if you if you know much about it, but one of the um, issues surrounding nuclear radiation in in society is this is the safety limits, and are the safety limits effective and correct? And from my research, what I found is that most of the safety limits are set using the precautionary principle. Uh, with something called the linear no-threshold hypothesis of, of damage. And that assumes that um, any particle of radiation interacting with a body has the same chance as any other of causing cancer. And there's no threshold dose right. or rate. So, you know, your body, if you get one particle every 10 years or 10 particles in one year, it's the same. Do you have a, what's your perspective on that from your, from your background in this field? It's bunk. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> it's, uh, no, I mean, it's, it's, it has been largely, uh, I think it's, uh, uh, the evidence is in that this is a, uh, what, what's, what's, what, what is, has been considered historically a conservative way of estimating, you know, 
keeping basically uh, the principle you you mentioned, I think, was the uh, Alera. Alera, yeah, it's a, as yeah. low as as little as reasonably achievable. What that corresponds to is that makes uh, nuclear technology as expensive as possible. Right. It's that, and and also uh, the other thing that has resulted is uh, you, what you might call over costly overreactions to exposures that aren't uh, dangerous at all. That in fact have little. I mean, if you look at the modeling, the, the so the linear no threshold uh, uh, model. I mean, it's there. There are many, many, many convincing papers published recently that have debunked. Uh, this okay, um, and not using particularly new, new ways of looking at the data. Just actually looking at the data, and so I think the original linear no threshold. So basically, what I mean to, to sum up what 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 linear no threshold says is it says that any radiation is bad. Mm-hmm. That's what it's saying. So there's 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 a, a finite risk. Uh, uh, additional risk associated with any level of radiation and the reality and I think it's convincingly been shown is that this is not true and the the problem is is that when you go and 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 start making policies and and reputable organizations such as the International Council on Radiation Protection its policy is based on the linear no threshold model I mean so it, it, it fits in the pocket of this Alara principle, so as low as reasonably achievable. But I think what's lost in there is the R part, the reasonable part. Um, no one wants to know that they're getting radiation. Um, no one wants to think that they're getting unnecessary radiation. The reality is, is that we, we receive significant uh, doses of radiation every day or year. Um, that based on the linear no threshold model would put us at significant risk. Um, And this is background radiation from cosmic rays. This is radiation coming from uh, our basements, radon, things like this. We we have about uh, somewhere between one, depending on where you live on Earth, one and 260 millisieverts per year. It's a big range. That's huge, yeah. 260 is, is like a radiation hot springs, I think. It's, uh, it's actually in Iran. I think it's in the mountains in Iran. And there's a few places, there's a few yeah. hot spots. On Ramsar. It. Yeah, Ramsar, exactly. Uh, there's uh, Guangdong, China, and Kerala in India are also radiation hot spots. And in these places, there is no uh, indication that there is increased uh incidence of cancer due to radiation that's important that's yeah and in fact they've, they've shown uh they've done a study where they they sort of um look at what happens when they give people in these areas a low dose a, a dose of radiation and they found that they find that people who live in areas with high background radi- radiation actually show a faster rate of cell repair after given what is what would be considered a damaging level of radiation so it's, it's an adaptive response, effectively, which is completely nonlinear. Right. So this is, um, they call this uh, uh, hormesis, I guess is the term that's used for 
kind of the cell's adaptive response to background radiation. This this sort of talk doesn't sit well with a lot of people who have built industries on the Alara principle mm-hmm. and uh, enforcing it. Um, for example, radon. Mm-hmm. There is a huge industry in, in eliminating radon to get levels of uh, radiation in your basement down below a certain threshold. And the thresholds are dropping every decade mm-hmm. um, for no apparent reason. I don't think there's any data that shows that radon actually causes an increase in cancer. Yeah, uh, and these, these so, so you're, it's leading to unnecessary costs, cases, I think. I don't know if there have been any radon evacuations. I'm sure there have been. Uh, displacements, <laughs> you know, displacement of families, uh, groups of people, anything like this, uh, you know, based on um, this faulty model, this faulty modeling and this faulty idea. And yes, it comes back to this idea that, you know, we don't want any radiation. Um, we don't know why it seems like there's actually, le- you know, when, once you get down to a low enough level of radiation, you actually have negative risk associated with it. I don't know if anyone's come up with a single explanation, but one one uh, that's thrown out there is certainly that we have evolved with our, our, I mean, all beings on the planet have evolved with a, a level of background radiation that was probably greater than it is now. It's true. All the radioactive stuff in the world has been decaying throughout the history of the world and getting less less radioactive so right now you know, it's the least radioactive time in the history of the world it's exactly yeah in fact we're we're, we're uh, so maybe we're going for that we're, well maybe we are getting so that we can tolerate less i don't know but uh, i'm not throwing that out there <laughs> <laughs> i didn't say that <laughs> Oh, that's that's very yeah. interesting. I mean, there's something to be said for for cell renewal, and uh, mm-hmm. I think um, you know a certain amount of radiation damage, as it were, can can bring that about, can sort of prompt that, and that may be a healthy thing at a, at a low rate. Tell me about that. Cell renewal. Cell renewal. Well, I mean, a certain amount of um, so if you by by inducing uh, death or DNA repair, I guess. Maybe, maybe instead of cell renewal, I should say DNA renewal would be a more a better way of putting it. So you induce DNA DNA repair, and this may actually have a beneficial effect uh, in terms of uh, helping us survive genetic mutations, hmm. uh, potentially damaging ones down the road. Very interesting. So if you somehow prime the cell, or or you know have a cell that's set up to do do repair. In a ro- you know robust at a robust rate, then maybe it can handle something that's truly damaging uh, better, and that may be what negative risk actually is. So this this is this has been very interesting. So um, so if anyone comes up to you and tells you that there's no safe level of radiation, I'm looking at you, Greenpeace. <laughs> you can tell them that Blake Walters tells you there is. <laughs> uh, yes, and uh, I'll give them my uh, my phone number. <laughs> Excellent. No, uh, yeah, I think it's 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 not something that I mean even even myself it's it's the, the the gut it's it's sort of a gut level reaction that we don't want radiation right that this is something that something that we don't want it's it's counterintuitive in a way right but I think if you look even on the on the quant you know on the quantum level on the on the on the sort of subatomic level. 
radiation operates in a very counterintuitive way. It's, it's operation, how it, how it works inside the body. I've, I've talked about it as a, as a bullet, but that's such an approximate description. Really, it's, it's quite an elegant, uh, like I said, a cascade uh, of events. And it's, it's, this isn't necessarily an intuitive thing. And um, it's an area, I guess, of science where we, we, we do have to sort of be prepared to uh, entertain counterintuitive notions. <laughs> Doing this on a mass scale, of course, or on, on the scale of, of, of public policy is very, very difficult because I don't think that we, we, when, we when it comes to public policy, especially here in Canada, I think we, we really like things to be quite, we want to keep things as low as, oops, as, low as possible, right? So It's, it's uh, a simple solution that is wrong and the world is full of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's a simple, intuitive solution. That's and, and it's basically that one principle, that one precautionary principle, focusing on the fear of radiation and keeping it as low as possible has basically hobbled nuclear energy for the past three decades. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And is, one could argue is the basically the driving reason that we have climate change now well i mean this this whole idea of taking nuclear reactors offline uh you know that's happening uh or has happened in ontario uh i guess started i mean i, I forget when bruce bruce went offline is bruce completely offline now or do they have anything up there no no bruce has been uh, sold to a private enterprise and it's pumping out as much energy okay. as it ever has all right okay so yeah, Bruce is good. Uh, it's undergoing a refurbishment right now, a midlife refurbishment. Okay. okay, good. Darlington is going through a midlife refurbishment. And Pickering uh, is slated to be shut down in 2024 instead of going through its midlife refurbishment. Right. So, and, and, and the, 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 there, you know, I think there's an understanding that it's going to be uh, a, a cold day in hell or a hot day in hell, depending on how, you know, things work out. Um, before we build new reactors um, and don't, you know, we either look it at... It seems to be the the going... Yeah. There's there's this, this small modular reactor uh, funding that's going on, but it seems like it's, it's more of a sop to the uh, pro-nuclear people uh, rather than putting real money into building solutions that we know work mm -hmm. or, you know, refurbishing Pickering. We would... You know, Ontario seems destined to bring online, um, you know, five gigawatts of, of gas burning power yeah. when Pickering goes offline rather than, yeah. you know, spend a little more and get a, a clean energy source for the mm -hmm. next 30 or 40 years. And it's it's really sort of what, what, what uh, you know, pub, it's, 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 I guess, popular perception about, uh, you know, nuclear reactors a sort of a misunderstanding of uh, of nuclear waste and how it needs to be treated. Mm -hmm. These are and 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 I th I feel like we have ceased to look at this anymore, and and it sort of shoved it aside in terms of you know the quote unquote green green energy technologies. Um, but the and, but the sad fact is is it's something that we have now right that we could be using. Yeah, I think. There's a lot of reasons that the green leadership is not um, interested in abundant clean energy as a solution. 
Um, most of them are interested in degrowth, I think, and they have, you know, other reasons for that. Uh, and, you know, if nuclear came along and solved the problem, then they wouldn't have a lever to take apart capitalism. That's a good, yeah, that's a good, which, yeah. you know, give or take that that's the wrong way to go about this. If you want to take apart capitalism, let's talk about that as a mm -hmm. society and, and, and address that issue. And if you want to change, if you want to solve climate, let's mm -hmm. look at the solution for climate. But let's not use one as a lever for the other. Let's not be deceptive about our goals. If, you, if your goal is environment and you're called Greenpeace or the Sierra Club, you should be yeah. pro-nuclear. Yeah, I don't see any issue there. And yet, uh, I mean, I don't think, do, do, do those people even talk about nuclear energy? Or I mean, if, I think if they do, it's about... They no, try not to. Exactly. Exactly. I don't, I mean, it's, it's such a political hot topic. Um, now, I don't. It, I don't. I don't think anyone uh, in the in the in the debate before that last uh, election, this past election we had, did any, no one dared talk about nuclear. I don't think. Um, and yet, to me, it's sitting right there. I mean, it's 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 it was so dispiriting to watch that and see that they were uh, shuffling the deck, chair, deck chairs on the Titanic, as it were. There. Yes. They really didn't propose anything feasible in my mind. I mean, they didn't no, propose anything. No, there's anyway. no plans that work. Uh, there's a lot mm -hmm. of goals being bandied about, but no plans. Mm -hmm. And yet here's something, that's because I guess plans are boring, but here's something that we can actually use to plan. Uh, it's, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting topic, right? Like it's a whole, uh, the, the sort of the, the fate the fate of nuclear energy right now because I I think kind of like radiotherapy I don't know if it's going anywhere really I don't know for I don't know if it, I mean are we ever going to get to the point where we say you know we don't need it at all yeah you know I don't think anytime soon you know, if, if you look at returning to solar and wind as your hundred uh, percent sources of energy. Uh, you're basically going to be putting society back to a like a renaissance uh, Europe level of um, industry where 90% of your time is 90% of your resources are going into gathering energy, gathering fuel, gathering wood to burn, gathering uh, solar panels to, to replace the ones that are dying, you know, and, and subsistence agriculture. Those are the, you know, <laughs> that's effectively where you have to go if that's what your society is based on. You have to go back to that period. And sure, it's, it's, a, it's nice to, to think that that was a, a beautiful time where people didn't have any worries, but, but the truth is, is far from that. <laughs> The truth was it was a squalid uh, lifestyle and people, you know, d died at the age of 40. I don't want to lose my energy. <laughs> I don't, I, I, I like the, I like, I like having power. I like having, having, uh, you know, safe energy, clean and safe energy. Me as well. I think. <laughs> I, I discovered eco-modernism as a, as a group of people that are pro-nuclear and pro-environment and trying to decouple yeah. the energy from the environment effectively yeah. decouple yeah. those impacts with science and technology mm -hmm. rather than with Ludditeism. right and i think I, th I think nuclear energy or nuclear power gives us that uh, there there are some possibilities in there for sure for, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. uh and, it, and again it comes back to sort of looking at the waste what are we doing with the nuclear waste 
The reality is, is that it's something that we can observe closely if we want, if we choose and are willing to, 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 to spend the resources doing it. Uh, and the payoff would be great, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, 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 you talk about going back to sort of a, a neo, neo-Renaissance where instead of, you know, people going to, uh, going to the well, they're going to replenish their batteries. They're going to the battery recharger. Um, (laughs) I think I I, I get this feeling that we're still waiting for the great new technology, the great new energy technology, or that there will be a battery, you know, that there will be, we we haven't yet developed the battery with the life span. There'll be a grid scale battery that will last more than 10 years and will not require lithium or, or rare earth mining. Or fusion will happen and become suddenly, you know, orders of magnitude more efficient than it is now. And there's always this. There's always something to look forward to, but we're not mm-hmm. there yet. And and well, and it happens on such. I mean, it, it does. We 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 do have discrete jumps in technology, but I mean, we're living. We're basically living the development right now, right? And it and as we see, it's. It requires, there's no one solution. It requires bringing in a whole bunch of different things. Um, so maybe we don't unhook the pop, maybe we don't unhook the nuclear generators. Yeah, you know, let's hold off on that. You know, let's, uh, yeah, this kind of thing. A modest proposal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's not unhook the nuclear generators just yet. Just not. <laughs> So I think we're getting towards the end of our time here, Blake. I really uh, enjoyed speaking with you today. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. For coming on, I'm going to send you a a Rational View t-shirt. Oh, excellent. Uh, Before I sign off, I have a question I ask a lot of my uh, interviewees. Just out of interest sake, what's your favorite science fiction? Oh, oh my! you know what? I think the the, the... the, the best or my favorite sci-fi book that I've read in recent memory was The Sparrow. Did you ever read that one? The Sparrow? No, I haven't. Mm-hmm. It's about Jesuits in space. <laughs> really? Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I highly recommend it to anyone, even even if you're not a huge sci-fi fan. You know, when, when I, I think I started off as a Star Wars fan, but I think I, I now have moved towards more the the messier side. I mean, I mean, those were the, the space battles are cool. I love the ships, but um, I do like some of the messier aspects. And I mean, the Sparrow is a really good sort of study in in issues with 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 travel and exploration. It's a good book. Um, but having said that, something like Dune, say, I mean, I haven't read that in years. Yeah. I haven't seen the movie. Have you seen the movie yet? I saw it the first weekend it came out. It was awesome. It's good. I highly recommend okay. it. Okay, good. Uh, and and um, but there there there's a, a you know my memory is that there's something that sort of takes a little bit of sort of the technology or the it it, it adds the sort of messy aspect to it kind of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. more realism. Exactly. Thank you very much for joining me uh, and our listeners on the Rational View. Uh, appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Al. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash 
the rational view. Thanks for listening.